Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. joining us for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen as we share the latest on COVID-19 with our resident experts. My name is Vicki Basilica, and I am the director of the Sectional Clinical Specialists and Scientists here at ASHP, and I'll be your host. Today, we'll be chatting with Amanda Condon-Martinez, Advanced Clinical Pharmacist and Solid Organ Transplant at Medical City, Dallas. And we're going to be talking about caring for transplant patients. Thanks so much for joining us today, Amanda. Thanks for having me. So let's get started today talking about um, what are the unique care aspects for transplant patients during this unprecedented time? Yeah, uh, so I would say a global pandemic is pretty much every transplant center's worst nightmare. You know, we take care of very immunosuppressed patients who are at constant risk of contracting an infection. So this is really a situation in which all of us have been running a little bit scared. You know, it's a worst case scenario. We're always having to balance the benefit of immunosuppression, preventing you know, organ rejection with the real risk of contracting a serious infection. So when the coronavirus hit, we had no idea how to manage our patients that contracted it for one. And two, we didn't know what the best recommendations were for preventing infection. So while we're somewhat comfortable and capable of dealing with serious infection in transplant, this was really a big black box for us. Now, what I found pretty remarkable and unique with Transplant was we had an instant international network of information sharing that happened. You know, Transplant is really a team sport and one in which we all try to help each other out. And so there was a lot of sharing of case reports, protocol changes, um, workflow modifications, etc., I think one of the things that was really unique to transplant too is we had this challenge of how to manage active transplants and donors during this time. So could we even safely transplant patients during a pandemic? And certainly, you know, what are the ethical considerations of that decision? So, you know, a lot of questions surrounded, you know, how do you consent a recipient for this life-saving procedure without knowing if that procedure could then lead to harm during this coronavirus outbreak? which could potentially even include death. So there's been a lot of movement around uh, donors as well. And certainly at first we weren't able to reliably test organ donors for coronavirus. And that put a halt on many transplants across the nation. You know, we really saw our numbers plummet everywhere. And, you know, centers were not willing to take the risk of transplanting a patient with an unknown coronavirus donor status. So, I think that's pretty unique in that we weren't even able to necessarily appropriately screen our donors. And so the first tenant then is to do no harm. So that kind of halted a lot of transplants. Secondly, I think an interesting thing that we saw that's unique to transplant is patients have also taken themselves off of the list because of the fear of coronavirus. And this is a pretty tragic situation because we've had patients who may have received their life-saving gift during this coronavirus pandemic, but were unable to receive it because they took themselves off the list for fear of contracting coronavirus. And certainly for certain patients, this is a, a... unfortunate event because some patients may be highly sensitized and therefore harder to receive an organ because of matching. And they may have come up during this time. And then we had to go past them on the list because they had put themselves on hold. So that's really unfortunate, I think. 
Um, you know, as more data comes out surrounding coronavirus and transplant, I really think we will see the morbidity and mortality impact that this pandemic has had on our patients waiting for organ transplant and certainly on the patients that have received them and all of the ethical decisions that we've had surrounding transplant. So we've been hearing across the nation about different drug shortages from critical care to outpatients. So I was just wondering, are there any drug shortages affecting your patient population? And if so, how have you been managing these? Yeah, so I mean, drug shortages are just part of the job now as a pharmacist. I feel like we feel these all of the time and they're just becoming more and more evident. And certainly in transplant, we are still plagued by the tacrolimus shortage, which started last year. It started last year with the one milligram capsules. And now what we're seeing is a shortage with the 0.5 milligrams and the five milligrams, as well as still some one milligram capsules. And, you know, our approach previously before the coronavirus pandemic was to convert people to alternative long acting formulations that have an adequate supply. Now, when we switch to these long-acting formulations, there's usually more monitoring involved, which throw that in with a pandemic, it becomes a little bit more difficult because we don't want our patients to come to uh, the lab for lab draws unnecessarily. So we've had to be a little bit more thoughtful about how we approach this tacrolimus shortage. In my center, we've kind of adopted what's a conservation strategy where we are converting people to long-acting formulations who qualify based on, you know, they're, they're having labs drawn more frequently already, either because they're early out from transplant or they're experiencing some sort of complication in which we need to get labs drawn more frequently. So those are people who are prime, you know, candidates for switching over to the long-acting form. For our stable patients, then, we're hoping that by converting some of those newer patients, we're able to maintain adequate supply for our maintenance patients who are staying away from, you know, lab, the lab and the clinic, et cetera. You know, at the beginning of um, the coronavirus pandemic, we also had a lot of concern over hydroxychloroquine, as many places did. Uh, we have a lot of, especially in kidney transplant, we have a lot of patients that have SLE, where hydroxychloroquine is often used for those patients. And so there was a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety surrounding whether those patients would have adequate access to medication. And fortunately, we saw a very quick response by states to limit, um, basically, the, <laughs> the inappropriate prescribing of hydroxychloroquine, and that kind of tampered that down a bit. Now, for, in a, I guess in an unfortunate slash fortunate way, you know, it's really not panned out for hydroxychloroquine, and our patients aren't having those concerns anymore. I would say another um, kind of area too, I guess, that depending on what type of transplants are done at your center, we did have some interesting kind of back and forth with hospital resources in relation to the ICU. So certain organs require a much higher level of care at the beginning of transplant, such as lung transplant, heart transplant, liver transplant, where these patients um, kind of come from the OR into the ICU. And there was a lot of discussion around, you know, allocating resources in the setting of a global pandemic with coronavirus, where we know that a lot of these patients are going to the ICU. So some tough conversations had to happen on what you, you know, what was going to happen with the transplant program if certain resources needed to be allocated. 
Um, we're seeing a little bit of lightning on that now, as I think we may have somewhat uh, flattened the curve, but more is to come over the summer as we see some numbers peak in certain states. Yeah, especially since we're starting to, um, to reopen. Um, can you share with me how you're managing your new transplantations versus, uh, and you've kind of touched on this a little bit, your maintenance patients, um, and what are you concerned about in each one of these populations? Sure. So at the beginning of transplant, you know, we are always worried about induction immunosuppression. That is really a big whack to the immune system, and we really knock it down quite a bit. And those patients are at in a very increased risk for contracting infection. Um, so patient selection is really key. I'd say a lot of places are really thinking about who can we safely transplant where we can minimize how much immunosuppression we need to use up front. That being said, you know, we may not be willing to transplant somebody who is a positive cross match where we have to use lots of heavy handed immunosuppression because of that risk benefit during that time. Um, so I think we're really being very thoughtful about who we choose uh, right now for transplant. As we start to open up, I think, you know, hopefully we can go back to what we were doing before. But right now, there's still that kind of conscientious decision making going on. As far as maintenance patients, I think, you know, we always joke about it in drug shortages, like never let a good drug shortage go to waste. And I think, you know, you can kind of tongue in cheek say never let a global pandemic go to waste because it has really stimulated conversation about maintenance immunosuppression and how low is, is too low. And certainly I see a lot of centers and our center being one of them where we're thinking about what our, you know, maintenance immunosuppression goals are. Can we push a patient lower on their tacrolimus goal that's doing well otherwise? You know, their graft function is good. They're not having um, signs of over immunosuppression. They don't have any rejection. So can we push them a little bit lower? And I think those are good conversations to have. We can be very different in how we practice at, at uh, centers across the United States. And so knowing that there may be some modifications that we can make to our protocols can be a beneficial thing. I always joke that I have like this Scandinavian approach to transplant pharmacy because I'm big on like, I want to use the bare minimum. Like Amanda's transplant pharmacy is very minimal, like just what you need to get by uh, because patients don't like taking medications and we can see the side effects and we can see the risks of being on these medications. And I think they're just becoming more evident in a situation that we're in right now where there could be uh, the possibility of our patients contracting coronavirus more easily. What have been your um, top three clinical concerns for transplant patients? So I think, you know, it's funny, I'm a pharmacist, but a lot of my concerns are more related to the global picture of our patients and, and their health. My first concern is really adequate um, access to care and then having good social support. And of course, as a pharmacist, balancing immunosuppression. That's kind of the nerdy thing I care about. But when, when we talk about access to care, you know, I really think about our patients who may be falling through the cracks at the moment. You know, we've switched a lot to telehealth for many patients, but this is not always the ideal modality for every patient. You know, we assume everyone has a smartphone, that they can text, that they can video chat. 
but that's not everybody's reality. You know, I have some patients who are on a fixed income who have only so many minutes uh, on their cell phone plan for a month, and they may not be able to have a 30 minute phone call with their transplant doctor managing their medications and their care. So as we build out, you know, these remote workflows and we shift to how we deliver care, I do think we really need to be conscientious of patients who need alternative technology or assistance. You know, it really can't be a one-size-fits-all approach for post-transplant cares. In relation to social support, you know, as our, our hospital, as probably I'm sure many hospitals did, we restricted visitor access hospital. And I saw how much this impacted the mental health and the recuperation of my patients. And I really discovered that social support is so important to a healthy recovery for a patient. And patients can often be overwhelmed, depressed, and scared in the hospital. And that's only amplified when then they have no access to the people that normally give them kind of hope and reassurance as they recover. I've seen patients do a complete 180 from when they got discharged, when they had nobody, to then going home, and now their caregivers are present, and that just reinforces the importance of having them there at baseline. So I really hope, you know, as a community within transplant that we reflect back on how we can really optimize our workflows in the event that we ever need to restrict visitors again. As the country's opening up, you know, visitors are coming back into the hospital. And I think we really need to be conscientious of how we handle that in the future. You know, when we talk about medication education with these patients too, as a pharmacist, I can tell you they retained very little of my medication education without a caregiver there. And I was just hoping that like I've prepped you well enough and helped you load your medication box correctly. I literally just need you to put the pills in your body at this time of the day. Um, and it was sad that that was the bare minimum so that we could you know, bridge them to getting out of the hospital where caregivers could become involved. Uh, lastly, as a pharmacist, as I said before, you know, I'm always worried about over and under immunosuppression. And so balancing immunosuppression is definitely a top concern of mine. We currently don't have the answers that we need for coronavirus, like any, you know, specialty right now, like any of the general population, we still don't fully understand this virus. Um, and we are fortunate in transplant, we have brilliant people doing remarkable work across the world. But you know, we want more data and we want it now. And certainly I think what's interesting in transplant is what works for kidney transplantation may not translate to lung transplantation. So even within transplant, we may have very different management strategies for our patients and ensuring that our patients are optimized in their immunosuppression is really kind of key and, you know, first step. And, we do that as best as we can currently, but now it's even more important that we keep a kind of close eye on our patients and really start questioning, like, are they at the goals that we need them to be at? You've touched on this a little bit, uh, but how, uh, how are you seeing your patients? Um, what is going to change as the country reopens? Um, and through all of this, what have been your best lessons learned? Sure. So at my institution, we currently have a blended model. So when it comes to inpatient practice, we are doing table rounds. We're socially distanced, but they are table rounds and um, kind of going through all of our patients that way. We do not currently see any patients uh, in the hospital where previously we would see them every day and touch base with the patient. Now we only see them on day of discharge to 
through medication education. We did attempt doing medication education and kind of explaining how to load the medication box over the phone, but we had a masters with that. And so we decided with proper PPE um, that we would on day of discharge, go into the patient's room and do their medication education. Um, when it comes to clinic, we started out, you know, doing televisit only for patients. But again, we were seeing that we were struggling with the medication pillbox filling. And so the pharmacist has been assisting in clinic with the patients that uh, need a little bit more help and instruction on that. Uh, but still completing telehealth visits over the phone, doing education and you know medication reconciliation with the physicians and medication management. So a lot of it is driven to telehealth, but you're still going to have patients where you li- you really need that in-person kind of communication, um, and especially to show them how to do some of the more complex things. As the country reopens, I think we're going to see a false sense of security by some of our transplant patients where they can go back to, you know, being out in the community, not wearing masks, et cetera. And personally, I keep trying to press upon my patients that they, they really need to take precaution. Even when, you know, we think things are getting better, they're always going to be immunosuppressed and they're always going to be at risk. If not for the coronavirus, then for some other infection that may, you know, be in the future. I certainly don't want them to live in fear, so I'm not trying to make them scared to live their life. But I do want them to remember that there are basic precautions that we should all be taking to stay healthy. I'm also hopeful that some of the technology that has come out of telehealth um, with our patients will be optimized so that it can include, you know, all of the, the patients that we are currently taking care of. As far as best lessons, I would have to say the caregiver thing was something that really has impacted me over um, the span of this pandemic. You know, we always talk about it and you, you, you understand it from kind of a high level, like conceptual thing that, yeah, caregivers are important. But I think I, seeing them taken away and how poorly a lot of my patients did was really opening and really something that has then inspired me to make sure that we always have caregivers, whether it be on a phone, FaceTime, whether they come in and we talk to them individually, like they really are the unsung heroes of our patient's recovery. Um, You know, and that makes sense. Our patients are really inundated with so much information on transplant. Not only do they have to know their meds, they have to know how to take care of their surgical wound, what foods they can eat, how much water they need to drink, um, what exercises they can do, what vitals they need to check and how to check those vitals. And that can be overwhelming. You know, Just doing that as a healthy person is overwhelming, but then add on top of that, the fact that they just underwent a very large, you know, complicated surgery means that they definitely need help. Um, I also think one thing that I'll take away from this time is really how fascinating science has been in coronavirus. We really latch on to things when we think it may work because we have patients in front of us that are sick and we want to help them. Um, And as the pharmacist, sometimes you have to be the practical kind of very facts-driven person, it be hard in this situation. So I did find myself questioning hydroxychloroquine at the beginning because there can be significant 
drug interaction, significant side effects in our transplant patients that we were seeing and trying to convey that as everybody was grasping that this could be either a prevention or a cure was really difficult. And I'm still, you know, astounded every day when we see we see literature that has been redacted or because their data wasn't good or the new information has come out is really, I think, a good testament to being very diligent in how we make clinical decisions with, um, you know, in this type of situation, especially with transplant patients who have lots of other things going on too. Um, I really do think that this kind of bad science paradox of, of the coronavirus pandemic will be something that we discuss for years to come in medical and research ethics. And so we should take this opportunity to really learn from that so we don't allow that to happen again. And recognize that pharmacists are always the voice of reason. <laughs> yes. You know, we do know a thing or two about drugs. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> uh, so one of the things I've been asking my guests is, um, this has been a very stressful time. So what are you doing to maintain your well-being and resilience? So... Um, probably not the best, uh, at, at maintaining, you know, resilience and mental health. Cause I decided to get married and buy a house during coronavirus. I, <laughs> we were supposed to get married <laughs> in April, but that didn't happen. And so we bought a house and that has been great actually for sheltering in place. Cause nothing will keep you home more than, you know, things that you need to do around the house and moving in and getting things set up. And we also have two dogs. So we, we, have a nice yard now where there's lots of outdoor time and lots of barbecuing. <laughs> that sounds great. There's nothing like getting, making sure you're unpacked, like lots of time. <laughs> no way. <laughs> House was put away in three days. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I've been asking all of my guests is, as we know, one of the important ways to avoid the spread of the coronavirus is to wash your hands for a minimum of 20 seconds. So a lot of people like to either hum or sing a song to themselves while they wash their hands for that key 20 seconds. So what is your favorite song to wash your hands to? <laughs> So I think that that Baby Shark song came out with like a, a wash your hands version. And that song is like always stuck in my head anyway, but I don't know the words. So I just kind of baby shark. Doo -doo. <laughs> I don't know. It kind of makes me giggle when I'm washing my hands, but that's, that's my song. It's so catchy. <laughs> it really is. And happy birthday. Just, I don't know. It doesn't seem as fun as Baby Shark. So. No, exactly. <laughs> Well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Amina for joining us to discuss COVID-19, ACHP's efforts to provide pharmacists with the most up-to-date lessons learned and resources. Before we go, I'd like to share some of those resources with you. If you haven't already, be sure to check out ACHP's COVID-19 Resource Center found at ACHP.org, which serves as a clearinghouse for more information on COVID-19 for pharmacy leaders, clinicians, and resources for patients. ACHP has also developed policy recommendations for policymakers. Ask your legislators to support ACHP's COVID-19 recommendations by sending an email using the Online Advocacy Center at advocate.ashp.org. Be kind to your mind. Headspace is now the exclusive meditation and mindfulness app for ASHP members. With Headspace, you can learn the life-changing skills of meditation and mindfulness in just a few minutes a day. Studies show that meditation helps reduce stress and burnout in health professionals while boosting happiness, compassion, resilience, and over-life satisfaction. Visit ashp.org and search Headspace to find out how you can download this free subscription to your own. 
If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to ACHP's podcast as we'll be posting more on lessons learned, practice, and therapeutic management of COVID-19. I'm Vicki Vasilega, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.